Blog Talk Radio. that man in a box. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a new show here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. This is because, this is because name, in this case, Gavin, made me. Because Gavin made me. Uh, we will be reviewing the movie, There Will Be Blood. The whole concept of this, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. <laughs> um, the whole concept of this show is basically uh, a cross between my desire to uh, get out of my comfort zone and watch movies that people have recommended to me that I might not necessarily have had any interest in, but are quality movies or not. <laughs> Some people have interpreted this as a, as a great way to introduce me to terrible movies that I can laugh at. In either case, I have spent the last couple of years on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network being the benevolent dictator, and in many ways still am. Uh, I write the schedules, I write the songs, but I wanted to do a show where I take myself out entirely and say, and give the control to anybody willing to spend an hour, hour and a half talking movies. And so, and of course, the other reason we're doing this is because I, I, I owe Gavin on a debt. <laughs> on a bet, rather. He bet me that the Gambit movie is never going to get made, and while it's technically still in production, you didn't see that, but I just did air quotes. Um, At at the rate things are going, by the time they get around to Gambit, uh, my son will be doing a podcast, you know, in his 40s. So, I... I, You win, Gavin. You win. And so... (laughs) As such, he picked the movie. We're going to review it. And tonight is the Paul Thomas Anderson oral movie, There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And boy, does it ever star Daniel Day-Lewis. So here is my co-host for the the man making me review this thing, Mr. Gavin Napier, formerly of the Casual Heroes, formerly of the Bunkhouse Stampede. How you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing well. You're getting a little bit choppy on your... Um, and I will say that don't think of this as losing a bet. This is my gift to you. Uh, there will be blood to me features one of the three or four greatest performances ever on screen. Um, certainly one of my favorite on screen performances and going back and rewatching in anticipation of doing this, uh, I had because of the magnitude of the performance of Daniel Day-Lewis in this, which he was rightfully awarded yet another Best Actor Oscar, 
Um, I had forgotten just how good and how nuanced of a performance that Paul Dano turned in as his opposite. Uh, It's very easy for everything to be swallowed up opposite of Daniel Day-Lewis in any movie, um, as we've seen in in projects like Lincoln and Gangs of New York. But to me, there will be blood. Maybe not the most challenging role of his career when you think about things like My Left Foot, but certainly to me, this is the most engrossing magnetic performance of his career. And, you know, it's right up there with, with Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, and everybody will chuckle when I say this unless they've actually seen the movie, Ryan Reynolds in the movie Buried, where it's a one-man show in a box underground. Um, <clears throat> there are there are performances that I'm sure we'll get into that make you alternately for uh, Daniel Plainview and um, I, I believe one of our mutual friends uh, has made good use of the phrase, everyone loves a bad guy. And Daniel Plainview <laughs> is one of the most likable bad guys of all time. Um, and, and there are moments when you are actively pulling for him uh, opposite Paul Dano. But at the same time, this is one of the most unlikable characters to ever grace the silver screen. And, and to me, that's what makes this so fascinating is that you are cheering for someone who is, completely morally despicable. Yeah, it was hard to find someone to root for in this movie. I will absolutely agree that uh, magnetic is the right word to describe his performance. And and I will say this. I do appreciate a movie where where actors act. I think, you know, with a lot of the mainstream blockbuster movies that are out there, it's the people just sort of not, I, I, don't, I don't want to say phoning in a performance. It's a bit cynical, but I don't feel like they stretch themselves as actors. I think they, I think a lot of our movies today feature people who can, you know, who know their lines and give a, a, uh, a fun performance. They give, you know, they are obviously fun to watch on the screen. But I don't know in a traditional sense how close they come to really creating an, a character. You know, to me, the essence of acting is being able to become someone that is not you uh, and, and be consistent throughout an entire motion picture, um, not just sort of do a version of you on screen. It's, it's, it's why as much as everybody rolls over and says, oh, God, Junior is Iron Man the greatest thing ever. It's like, yes, but I saw him do that same character in the pickup artist. It's not that different. So um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I would I would go as far to say that Robert Downey Jr. is not even acting, he's just being Robert Downey Jr. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. There's a lot more of that going on in modern Hollywood movies than uh than I'd like to admit. So it so Look, I'm I, I'm somebody who for years was watching independent films and, uh, you know, I, I was in Massapequa, New York, just pouring through uh, DVD after DVD of all these great independent movies and art house movies. I spent weekends going to uh, art house movie theaters in New York City. 
So, you know, I'm as big a film snob as, as anybody else out there. I'll put myself up against any film snob. I just think as I've gotten older and my time has, um, my, um, my, my time to do this sort of thing has become shorter. I've got to prioritize these things. And I also like, you know, I also like thing when things blow up on screen. So I guess, I guess I, if I have to choose um, with, so with that said, I really did embrace the idea of watching this movie because I, I you know, I, I knew going in, it was going to be good. I didn't know how good until I, until I finished it. And I have to say of the two Paul Thomas Anderson movies I've seen so far, this one was by far my favorite. Um, I have to watch Boogie Nights yet. <laughs> that that's that's coming later. But you know, compared to the master, I was really engrossed in this. I really enjoyed Daniel Day Lewis's performance. Uh, I really enjoyed Paul Dano. Uh, I loved the idea of the story of somebody who nearly kills himself, striking it rich with oil, and becoming and having the single-minded goal of becoming you know a rich oil baron and along the way losing his sense of humanity um so let let's talk about all that let's let's break this down and you know pick out some of these things that that are worth talking about and sharing with the public um real quick how did you come to there will be blood did you see it in the theaters did you do you just follow this particular director and watch anything he uh, he puts out there? I was familiar with the director uh, through Boogie Nights, and you know, living in Huntington, West Virginia, we don't get a lot of the Oscar bait movies, at, at least not on regular release. Um, we're we're still waiting for La La Land to show up here. Not that I'll mm. see it, but <laughs> it, it still has made its way to the theaters here, and. I'm also a big fan of Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, sometimes the movies that he's in themselves, the subject matter doesn't appeal to me. But if you go back and you look at Daniel Day-Lewis's history, he's sort of the exact opposite of Patrick Stewart. And don't get me wrong, I love Patrick Stewart. He's an entertaining guy. He's a good actor, classically trained. He's done Shakespeare. He's also done a lot of dreck, and he does things for the comedic value because he doesn't take himself too seriously. Uh, you'll find a, a, a long list of credits on Patrick Stewart's IMDb. Daniel Day-Lewis is exactly the opposite of that. He takes himself and he takes acting very seriously, and he chooses his roles very carefully. So when I found out that they were adapting the Sinclair novel into a book, and, and it's not so much a direct adaptation as they've taken some ideals and some characters and, and built around that skeleton. Um, but when I found out that they were going to adapt that into a movie and that Daniel Day-Lewis would be playing the part of Daniel Plainview, I was all in. Um, and I was really excited that we got it uh, in, in a timely fashion. I think there were about six people in the theater because I saw the latest showing of it on a weekday. And I just remember watching the movie play out. I remember the biggest part of the movie, my elbows were on my knees. I was leaned forward. I was drawn to the screen. And when it was over, I just kind of sat back in my chair and thought, huh. And I thought about the movie for about 10 minutes and while the credits rolled and then the ushers came in and started sweeping up what little bit of mess had been left. And I thought, okay, it's time to go. But it, it was a movie that stuck with me after I left the theater and talked about it with my friend. And 
Uh, I've gone back and watched it a couple of times, and it's not an easy movie to watch. And a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies aren't easy to watch. They're not popcorn movies. You can't turn them on and watch them mindlessly. They are things that demand your attention. And it's usually a lot of unpleasant people doing unpleasant things to each other. And these almost walking tragedies of humanity going through their lives. Um, Daniel Plainview makes the statement that he has a competition in him. He wants no one else to succeed. I hate most people. (laughs) That is the ideology that drives Daniel Plainview. And Daniel Day-Lewis, he becomes that person. The only other person... The only other actor in Hollywood that I can think of that has the ability to disappear into a role as often and as effectively as Daniel Day-Lewis is Gary Oldman. There was a long time when I had no idea what Gary Oldman actually looked like because he just disappears into roles. And Daniel Day-Lewis is very much the same way. Um, And to me, again, as effective as Paul Dano was, and in any other movie, Paul Dano would get rave reviews and he would get the lion's share of the attention for for the role that he played in his miserably unlikable wretch of a character. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, just he dominates everything in this movie. He certainly does. Um, I found, I actually found a, where he was leading the scenes, uh, the ones to be the most interesting. Uh, look, I'll be honest. You're absolutely right. This is a movie where the, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of density to the scenes, uh, one right after another. And I had the dubious <laughs> honor of watching this movie while I was trying to also parent my son, and. I remember having to go back and having to rewatch things or I would have to stop the movie and read the wiki to make sure I to figure out what in the hell was happening. And it really does. You, you have to pay attention to this. And, and here's the thing. And I've talked about this about movies before. It reminded me of what movies were like in the seventies where, uh, and I know I've said this a zillion times, but here goes a zillion and one. The direction style and the craft of movie making in the 70s was such that the camera was very still and there weren't a lot of quick edits, but uh, the camera wasn't moving around on a roller coaster. It was just still. And scenes played out in front of a still camera and there was no dialogue a lot of times. You just had to watch the actor do a thing. And really throw themselves into, you know, into the blocking and action of those scenes. And it's, and it's almost like I had to retrain myself to pay very close attention. Like I think about movies like the deer hunter deliverance dog day afternoon. I'm not just doing movies with these here. Um, but you know, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, I guess some more good ones that, you know, the deer hunter of those, especially, where everything is so still and so quiet and you have to, you know, and it demands that you pay attention to it. And I was immediately, especially in the first sequence brought back to those, to, to those years, but I had to, I had to 
retrain myself out of what I've gotten used to, which is basically, you know, the style of movies now, which is, look, if you don't grab somebody within the first 30 seconds of the movie with some big action, you're going to lose them. So, you know, I'm sitting here watching this thing and, you know, he's in, he's digging, uh, he's mining at this point, right? He actually isn't looking for oil. I think he's, uh, mining for gold. Um, golden. And that was that opening scene to me, that was what, as soon as I sat down, I'd never seen a movie open quite like that. You know, you see soft opens, you, you mm-hmm. see movies that introduce you gently to characters, and, and there may be some stillness or some silence, but it felt like there were ages before anybody said a word, and right. there will be blood. And, and even in that silence, you're watching this man, you know, in in the time frame that this movie is set in, uh, a broken leg could very well be a death sentence. Right, And instead, Daniel Plainview splints his own leg, drags himself out of a makeshift mine, drags himself uh, across a barren wasteland to get medical treatment, walks with a hobble for the rest of his life. But he's determined not to die because he's not going to give anyone the satisfaction of Daniel Plainview being dead. He still has things that he wants to do. Absolutely. It, it, it drew me in. But like I said, it, it made me remember what it was like to watch a movie like that because it's been such a long time since I've seen one. The Transformers, Age of Extinction, this was not. Um, but the other thing, getting into sort of details of the movie, you know, so, he, so he strikes it rich with this, with this mine, and this is what launches him into the, uh, the oil career. But it also gives him a gimmick in the forms of an adopted son which I thought was hilarious because right away, you know, you have this contrast on the one hand you feel for the guy. This is somebody who is pursuing the American dream. He's, you know, he's out there doing the hard work of trying to make something of himself, but you know, by digging in the dirt to find wealth and you, you, you know, as an American, you want to root for that. And then just as quickly flips it on its head and you have a situation where he's a scumbag using an adopted son as a gimmick to try to further his wealth. He doesn't care about this child. This child is a means to an end. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the concept that he's selling is, oh, I am a, I'm a trustworthy family man. You know, look, it's me and my son out here against the world. And so, you know, I, and so, I'll work for you too. And he's full of shit. <laughs> and, and it would, the whole movie does that. It, as you said before, between the equally, if not more so, unlikable character that Paul Dano plays, you know, on the one hand, looking at him, you have a character who is righteous. You have a character who uh, ha- has given himself to God and he's trying to lead this community. And, but he's also a uh, he's also got this huge ego when he has an opportunity to make uh, the Daniel Day Lewis character grovel. He does, you know, he uh, later on in the movie, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but that final sequence with uh, with him and Daniel Day Lewis in the house and the uh, in the in, in the 
in your home bowling alley. You know, he's just a miserable yep. wretch. And so you go, you go between the two of them. It's like, I'm not entirely sure who I'm supposed to like here. You're both terrible. But there are parts to them right. that, 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 are, that are worth hearing as well. Sure. Absolutely. And, and if you go back to the cheap plug for Jesse Starcher here, source material, um, <clears throat> Upton Sinclair was a, a socialist hero. He, he did not believe in capitalism whatsoever. Uh, he was anti-big money. He, he thought everything should be distributed equally. He, was, he, he found himself on the wrong side of, of what we would end up calling McCarthyism. And Upton Sinclair was someone that wasn't afraid to be counterculture. And we see that in the in the two main characters here. We see that, <clears throat> yes, Daniel Day-Lewis is this very wealthy, very successful businessman, but he is also a cold-hearted, evil son of a bitch that doesn't care to step on and take advantage of normal people. And that was Upton Sinclair's view of the rich capitalist in America. So we see that portrayed in the uh, the other side uh, in Paul Dano's character Eli, Upton Sinclair had no regard for organized religion either. He saw the he saw organized religion as being an equally big con as any type of benevolent capitalist. And so, in both of these, you see Upton Sinclair's original intent and view of the characters and the social commentary from a novel that was written in the 1920s brought to characters that completely fulfilled his vision on the screen. Daniel Day-Lewis was 100% the evil capitalist that, that Upton Sinclair imagined them all to be. And Eli was very much the manipulative religious con man that – because if for all of his righteousness and, and, and piety, it's not like Eli wasn't pulling the wool over his, his flock's eyes as well. Um these were two bad people pretending to be good people. And I think they did a great job of bringing Upton Sinclair's vision for the characters to life. Uh, now for me, maybe I'm biased just towards Daniel Day Lewis. Maybe I like the Daniel Plainview character better because I am a 100% free market capitalist and believe that it works. But I was pulling for him the whole way through just because I found Paul Dano's character to be such a miserable little wretch. See, that that's fun. And, and that's an interesting thing to me because I was flipping between the two. And I, and, and I wanted to add that in their portrayals, neither one of them is overly mustache twirly. I really got the sense no. that they went out of their way to make sure that these were real people. And real people can be bad people. But it's a rare person that is 110% terrible, and they, you know, there's nothing good about it, nothing uh, worthwhile. That, I don't think that's realistic. Even in the worst of us, there's some, there's some decency somewhere, something good. Um, and so I thought that came out in the movie in the sort of back and forth between the two, where one one would be seemingly terrible and the other one would seem like he was in the right, and then the and then a flip again where the other one would then be terrible and uh, and his opposite would seemingly be in the right and it left me 
you know, it, it, it presents that complexity of life that is very realistic, but it also gave the movie another level of drama, uh, another level of, of, I think, intensity. Because right up until the very end, when he's drinking his milkshake, <laughs> um, you really, you, you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know who to root for. I mean, we're, we're, we're skipping around here, but if you think about how that, if you think about where they are at the end of that movie, he pretty much lost his sense of humanity. He is alone. He is miserable. And then in walks Eli, who has lost his fortune and is coming on alone, if I remember correctly. And you're like, ooh, we, we, we've now, after everything that's happened, we're now in a competition for who's the worst off. A man bereft of his soul, a man bereft of his, uh, his, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, dignity. <laughs> you, know, you know, one one has no humanity and one has no dignity. And you're like, ooh, which one is worse off? And and then rounds them with a fucking bump. Yeah. Answered for us, I suppose. Yeah, I, and. You know, we can we can always divert back to Daniel Day Lewis, but Paul Dano I, again, I, I feel like he's been overlooked in this film. And uh, again, it took rewatching the film for me to really appreciate how good he was, because really the only thing that I remembered about him upon first viewing was how hateable Eli was, and how easy it was to just want him to go away, but. Did, was is. that a was that due to your own prejudices though? I mean, did you did you did you want to root against the religious guy? Uh, because like I said, I found them to be equally detestable. You know, and it was well, just a matter I, of circumstances shifting how detestable they were. It, it it seemed to me that Eli was a a a weaker version of Daniel. Okay. In that, if he had the ability to do what Daniel you did, he would have done it. But for, for whatever reason, he was made of, of what they call sterner stuff. I, I don't think Eli would have drug himself out of the mine and across the desert with a broken leg. I, I don't think Eli would have survived that. And, and I don't think that Eli had that force of nature personality to simply overwhelm anything that stood in his way. So Eli, in his ability to manipulate, he had to be much more underhanded. Um, Daniel Plainview, he approached things in a very forward manner. He approached the family to buy the land and the family knew the land was worth more than he was offering, he just kept offering until they said yes. It wasn't so much of an underhanded deal by Daniel Plainview as much as it was a shitty deal that he badgered them into taking. (laughs) Eli, for his part, almost everything that he did, he had to be very manipulative about it. Right. And I think that we can all relate to the position that Daniel Plainview found himself in with Eli, where there, there's a person 
somewhere in our lives who seems to lead that charmed life, and no matter what they do and no matter how much of an asshole you know that they are, everybody loves them, and everybody thinks (laughs) they're wonderful. And there comes a time you find yourself in the position you have to ingratiate yourself to that person. And it sucks. And in watching (laughs) Eli be that person, I found it very easy to not so much root against him, to just not like him. Because you, like I said, everybody knows that person. Everybody knows that someone that you just can't stand and everybody else loves. And you think to yourself, I know you better than they do. You're not what you seem to be. They'll never believe it. Daniel Plainview just made it his life's goal to expose it. Let me ask you something about the plot structure of this movie, because the first act is all about getting the kids to the mall. And in this particular case, it's getting Daniel to the plot of land and getting the oil rig up and running. And once that happens, we have an event that sends us really into the second act of the movie. And I think it's the second act where I could see the necessity for it, but it got a little windy for me. Maybe you feel differently. I felt like um, specifically, and I don't know if I'll go back a second. What ends up happening is uh, he does approach the family about the land. He does get the land. There's one holdout, Mr. Bandy, I believe is the name. Um, they start production. There's an accident. Um, and uh, a worker gets killed. And a gas blowout robs the son, the adopted son of his hearing. Uh, Eli, I'm just, just going to read this now. Eli blames the disasters on the well enough which would make me want to strangle him. Um, when Eli demands that the 5000 Daniel slows his family. Daniel beats and humiliates him at the dinner table. And Eli then berates his father for trusting Daniel. So that's all kind of like that. That 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 is the the conclusion of Act One, and that's all all great because you know you're you're getting a movie about an oil man and um, and his conflict with this uh, town religious leader. So fine. So when everybody's now. We finally have this long step to get to where we need to be to move the story forward. And then they make this detour of sorts with the um, the man that arrives on Daniel's doorstep claiming to be his half-brother, Henry. And I understand this is what sets up the kid getting jealous and setting the fire and being sent away. Uh, comes back later on in, the, I think, the third act. But I have to say, this is one of those parts of the movie where it started to lose me a little. Because of all the things the movie was trying to say about people and business and oil and religion, I wasn't quite sure where they were going with the introduction of this character and what all he meant. And then when it was over, I kept thinking to myself, like, was this trip really necessary? And, and, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong here or, or disagree, but I just felt like that whole sequence leading to the sun being sent away was a detour in the movie that I, that I just didn't think 
added as much to it as maybe the uh, writer and director thought it did. But, you know, I, I could be wrong. What was your thought about that? Um, I, I can see where the detour could be a little off-putting. Um, but if you watch Paul Thomas Anderson movies, you, know, he, you, will, you will quickly find that he is in no way uh, – does he feel himself constrained to put together a, a 90 to 115-minute film that is easily digestible and has a nice, neat start-to-finish plot line. Um, he takes detours. He goes all over the place with them. He, he explores characters, um, and that and that's true whether you're watching Boogie Nights, The Master, There Will Be Blood, uh, or Magnolia. Yeah, he he digs into characters, and I think what we see with that whole Odyssey with with Henry, who's not Henry, and, and everything that it leads to. It shows, to me anyway, that is the eradication of the last bit of goodness in Daniel Plainview. You are seeing Daniel Plainview let his guard down. He he believes this man's story. He accepts him because he has identification. He trusts him. He takes him in, and then he finds out the man has lied to him. The man is using him. And he murders him and he buries him. And that's the end of it for Daniel Plainview. Um, it, it's, it's this Daniel Plainview that we see launch into the bastard in a basket scene. And some of the most cold-hearted dialogue that has ever been recorded on film, screaming at the deaf son that you have raised, um, and granted, used as, as a manipulator, but who has stood by you, through everything that you have done, through every scheme, through every con, through every hustle, through every move, through every oil well and oil rig. And he just callously tosses him aside. He says, you're nothing without me. Go away. I don't need you. You're not my son anymore. You never were my son. And to me, that whole breaking away from the Daniel versus Eli plotline is just showing us the the further decay of Daniel Plainview as a person emotionally and mentally. I I absolutely see what you're saying, um, and I know because of the you know because he murders him, it sets up the stuff with Bandy and it sets up the stuff with Eli. Um, but I figured just as soon as all of those things happen, we're into a, a, a not a flash forward, but we are into a forward where we're now uh, HW was older. It's 1927. He's getting married and we're, you know, we're into this other part of the story. And so I guess my thing is, if you're going to take that, you're going to make it sort of the catalyst for him losing the, the of humanity. I guess either give me more of that particular of that particular fall from grace, that particular time, or don't quite do so much if you're just going to skip ahead to the next thing. Because I'll, I'll say this: how much of the letting the man in, letting his guard down, feeling betrayed, and then committing murder needed to happen versus the idea that his son 
was, and now, now follow my train of thought on this. Here you have this child who, for better or for worse, is, is a child you raised, even on a, on, a, on a minimal basic level, there's some connection. You, you have had this child since they were a baby. Uh, and that child comes to you and says, I want to go do my own thing. I want to dissolve this partnership. And you being a single-minded uh, person who is dead set on becoming the richest that he can, and everybody around him is a tool for that purpose. And this little bastard has the audacity to try to disrupt things and go do his own thing. I feel like that was enough. I feel like you, you, I don't know if you needed the prior sequences because that's strong enough in and of itself, especially with the mindset that he has in this movie, Daniel, the Daniel Lewis character. So I don't know. I, like I said, I feel like there needed to be some space and breathing room in between the two sequences or shorten or cut the first one so that we can spend more time with the son tearing out the heart of his father and leaving him nothing left but a completely, you know, drunken, psychotic madman. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I completely see where you're coming from on that. To me, it, it didn't bother me, um, but everything Daniel Day-Lewis is in, I, I watch, and I watch with, uh, with an eagerness. Um, I'm not 100% on Paul Thomas Anderson, and really, that's because of Punch Drunk Love. I just I tried, just couldn't do it. Um, oh, God, that movie, that movie is terrible. It, 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 I was, I was on board with with the whole detour uh, through the fake brother saga and, and all of that, and where it brought us back to. Um, it, it also gave us. Just before that, it gave us. We had that very intense scene with the the oil well exploding, and, and this. You know, you said you liked explosions in movies. Here's your one explosion for the movie. It, it becomes a very <laughs> visually striking scene with flames mm-hmm. barreling into the air and oil shooting everywhere, and chunks of lumber flying, and and men dying and being injured, and this black smoke just rolling endlessly into the sky over the town of Little Boston, and you have this very intense, very dramatic scene where the the signature image from the movie of Daniel Plainview sitting and watching the chaos um, is shown on the poster very often or in, in thumbnails for the movie. It gives us some breathing room after that. It goes from this very intense scene to this lull where the audience can sort of reset, catch their breath, get to know Daniel Plainview better, and then it goes right back into more emotional intensity, beginning with his son. And then once we have that bastard in a basket scene, it's full speed ahead to the very brutal, visceral ending of the movie. Yeah, we that, let's talk about that. So just to sort of recap here, uh, you know, we the man makes his fortune, buys the land, murders a dude. His son uh, attempts to dissolve the partnership, and is told, "You're, you know, 
in a basket. You were adopted. Go fuck yourself. Um, you know, he's become a drunk and a recluse. Uh, I, I, I think he, at this point, he had sold his shares not to one oil company, but another. Yeah, there's a lot of screwing, and I don't mean in a sexual sense, um, around, around the oil business uh, that gets talked about. But it, this all goes barreling ahead to our final sequence where he's alone in this mansion and Eli comes to him um, and he tries to sell the land the, the, of William Bandy to Daniel. And Daniel says that, uh, you know, it's worthless, but this is after he makes him denounce his faith. So there's this previous sequence where Eli humiliates the uh, Daniel uh, in public after you know, he had felt uh, after the whole murder thing had happened. And this is a whole, this is revenge, basically. It's revenge for uh, humiliating him. So he makes him denounce his religion and then, then, then tells him, well, it's nice that you did that and all, but it doesn't help your case because the land's worthless. It's already been drained of its oil. And not, not, <laughs> and to, shortly the- not, to, interrupt and, not to interrupt and throw everything off track here, but the scene where Eli humiliates him during the baptism is one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever watched in any movie. Because as you watch it, one, uh, again, it's infuriating to watch this character do this. It's just absolutely infuriating on every level. But at the same time, as he's doing it, you cannot help but feel a sense of dread and this ominous overtone of, Son, you don't you don't understand the bear that you are poking. This right. will not end well for you. But he's such <laughs> a, a smug, self righteous kid, he can't resist. He he thinks, seeing only the short term, that he has won. Because right. he is embarrassed Daniel Plainview. And and that whole scene, because of even on first viewing you know what will eventually come of this. You you may not know the, the particulars of how it will end, but you know that this is something that there will be retribution for. And it's just it's an uncomfortable scene. And maybe this is where I'm a weirdo. I enjoy when movies can make me uncomfortable like that. That's why I enjoy Joaquin Phoenix's performance in The Master, because almost every second that he's on the screen is just almost unbearably unappealing and awkward. And I love it. It's so hard for that to happen in movies. And that scene where he gets humiliated by Eli, it it might be my favorite scene in the movie aside from the ending because of how uncomfortable it is. I think, and and I, and I want to stick with, with film criticism and analysis think we would be remiss if we don't talk about some of the socio-political religious context of the movie since that's what it was about um and i think it needs to be said that and not just with religion i'm not picking on religion but he he is a religious character so i i you can't not bring this up but there were those out there that because they ride with jesus they ride with god they have god on their side are led to believe that they can perform terrible acts of indecency in humanity 
and feel like they are in the right because God is on their side. You know, it's okay for me to be this way and treat you this way because I'm, I'm the righteous person. That's what I got out of that scene. There, there's a, there was a certain naivete to this character, a certain ego, but definitely a certain immaturity based in his, his alleged de- devoutness to, to his religion. And I don't want to be, I don't, I want to be clear that I'm not picking on just religion here, but that's, that's the, the battery that's driving him. So I, you can't not talk about it. Um, you know, somebody who is so, so blinded by belief that they'll lead themselves to believe that it's okay to be indecent and inhumane. And yeah, when you set that up like that, Yes, obviously, this is going to come back around and bite him in the ass, and it's going to create a very satisfactory feeling for the audience. That's what I was thinking about while that scene was taking place. It was, oh, sure, yet another person throwing their weight around, uh, another person abusing the, the power that they have in, you know, in the business or the community or whatever. Uh, oh, how typical. I also, I, I, it told you a lot about that character, about his insecurities, about his uh, feeling small, especially compared to Daniel. So it's a very loaded scene. And, and I, didn't ne- I didn't necessarily feel uncomfortable watching it. Now, Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, I had to turn it off. And I do want to talk about that at some point with you. But we, uncomfortable doesn't even begin to to describe it for me in, in particular. But I actually did not find the first humiliation scene uncomfortable. I actually found when Daniel was berating him at the end, and then of course him eventually he bludgeons him with a bowling uh, pin. <laughs> yeah, he exhausted, did. sits against the wall and just yells out, "I'm done." I would venture to say that that was more uncomfortable for me than, than the earlier one, just because I've seen what the Eli character did a million times before in a million different places, but you rarely get to see in a dramatic performance, someone so become so completely undone and animalistic, uh, and, and and you can almost see the what's left of their soul leaving their body as he li- laid exhausted against the wall. So and that to me was was like yeesh. Pretty, you know, it's it's not a horror movie, but that was horrifying. It, it was, and to me, maybe the the most unsettling part of that final scene. And yeah, I, I was not made uncomfortable by that scene, but I totally. I grasp what you're saying and why it would be uncomfortable to watch. For me, watching that scene was, it made it possible to understand and not to, to throw things into a completely different realm of discussion, how things like the riots in Ferguson or the riots in Baltimore could happen. 
or sure. when when Woodstock when Woodstock two broke down into just a frenzy of violence while Limp Biscuit played great stuff and it was like a a, a match to a powder keg because you watch that scene and I've watched it multiple times even without watching the film I've just gone back and watched that scene from time to time because first of all the dialogue you said no that there are no mustache twirling villains in this but that dialogue that he's screaming at Eli is is very mustache twirly, but he manages to deliver in such a way that you don't cringe from the awfulness. Uh, But the the whole drainage and I I drink your milkshake. And I I remember this picture of him just screaming drainage and he's screaming so loud and he's so out of control that he's got drool rolling out of his mouth. And, And you're right. This is a man that's completely unhinged and it's terrifying to watch. And, and he is just, on one hand, he is humiliating Eli by making him renounce his faith. But I don't think Eli is humiliated as much as he is terrified at this point. That the, whatever Eli is doing in response to Daniel Plainview in that final scene, it, it's not so much making atonement as it is he's doing anything that he can in an act of self-preservation. He's doing what he sure. thinks will appease the man. But in watching that and this drawing the circle back around to what I said about the riots or, or Woodstock or whatever, in watching this, it is so easy to be pulled into that mindset along with Daniel Plainview where he is doing something absolutely horrific and you don't flinch from it and you understand mm-hmm. the position that he's coming from. And to me, that is the unsettling part of that is because this is this is someone just pretending to act out that rage, but you can feel a connection to it as a viewer, and once everything settles, you think, "Holy cow, I, I, I was I was in that moment with him," and you you spoke about earlier the 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 ability of actors to become another person. It's one thing to become another person; it's something else to become another person. And then draw the audience in with you. And, and more so in that last scene than probably any other in the film, I feel like it's easy to connect with Daniel Plainview because, yes, he is morally reprehensible and he's doing unspeakable things to a young man. But he does it with such a performance and, and with such skill that you're along for the ride with him. And, and it's very emotionally draining to sit and watch that last scene. I'm going to ask you a stupid question. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Do you really think Eli deserved to be treated that way? Here's why I'm asking you that before you answer. He was bludgeoned to death with a rolling, with, with, with a uh, bowling pin. And it's this culmination of their lives being twisted together over this oil field. And he, and he was coming to the man with hat in hand. He had already, you know, why have you forsaken me, Jesus moment. He had it off camera, but he had it. And at this point, everything that Daniel Day-Lewis does to him in that scene is just extra. If you think about who Eli is, he's lost his fellowship. He's lost his fortune. 
He's been humbled, and he he has to now go back to the man who's you know who who conned his family just to try to get through uh, these next couple of you know weeks, months, years, whatever. And it's like okay, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we, you know, we look at the math. I feel like he got his just desserts. And so that whole end sequence, while extremely entertaining and everything else that we've been talking about, it has the effect, in my opinion, of making of of making Daniel Day Lewis the worst horrible villain in the movie, which I guess is the point. But it also seemed like overkill. I, I remember watching that and having this distinct feeling of. You've won. Yes, you've lost everything in the process of winning, but compared to this guy, you're still ahead. Did you have? Why are you losing your patience with him? Like when he made him renounce his religion and then said, "Like I would have been completely satisfied." Had he, you know, had they done the bit with, you know, I want to sell you this land, and he says, "I drink your milkshake," and then you walk out of the scene. And just leave the camera on, on a sullen, broken Eli and, and watch his soul leave his body. I would have been okay with that and end movie. Well we sort of we sort of we sort of did that. We sort of saw his soul leave his body too. Fair <laughs> what was beaten out of it? Um it, it was it was spidered on Daniel Plainview's face. Yeah, fair enough. Um but goes so far that it's one of those things where if Dano is supposed to be playing the real villain of this thing, uh, you know, if he's supposed to be the reprehensible character, okay, but he, he got his just desserts, and Daniel Day-Lewis goes so far that you do start to feel sympathy for him at the end. It's like, was this trip really necessary? So again, I ask you, you know, did he deserve all of that? Um, well, I'll I'll take the obvious answer here and say that nobody other than Rosie O'Donnell deserves to be beaten to death with a bowling pin. <laughs> um, to you, sir. With with that with that exception being noted, um, I think that was the point of that final scene was to show you that there were no good guys in this movie. There, there were no heroes to cheer for. There, there were no true protagonists. There were two antagonists. One happened to drive the story a little more, but these are two men that have antagonized each other over the course of several years. And the single mindedness of Daniel Plainview shifted somewhere along the way from just being a rich oil baron and and financially dominating the landscape of the area in which he lived, it became a single-mindedness of destroying Eli and taking everything away from him. And in, in that frenzied moment where he's mocking Eli by screaming, I am the third revelation, mocking Eli's church, mocking... Eli's entire career that has fallen apart from around him. He has no flock. He has no ministry. He has nothing. He's poor. He's destitute. 
He is, like you said, he's hat in hand, begging, and that's not enough. Just, just like you said earlier in the movie, I, I have a competition in me. I hate most people. This is that hate given free reign. It's something that he's been dwelling on. It's something that he has been pondering for years as his own fortune dissipates. And now he's face-to-face with the person that he hates more than anything in the world. So did Eli deserve it? No. But humanity lives by a law, which I, you know, maybe I've accidentally stolen this from someone. I don't know that I've ever seen or heard it from, from anyone else, but I won't say that it's a completely original idea either, just in case. But the law of escalating response. And, and that is the idea that we are never truly satisfied with being evil. Um, you know, you call me a dummy, I call you a son of a bitch, you slap me, I punch you, you kick me, I, I pick up a stick or a rock, you get a, a, a bigger rock, I get a gun, you you get whatever. We're never we're never truly content once we've been offended. We're never content with being on even terms. It wasn't enough for Daniel Plainview for Eli to simply be broken and poor and humiliated like he was. He had to do one better. And really the only thing left was to take his life from him, and he did it by beating him to death with his own bowling pin in his own bowling alley in his own home, screaming, I drink your milkshake, and then yelling to the butler, I'm finished, as if the butler was just going to come down and mop up the brains of his employer. Um, I would have liked to have seen Eli's fall from grace on screen. I think coming in and delivering large blocks of dialogue, um, it's fine. Look, large blocks of dialogue when delivered well or can, can certainly be entertaining. But <clears throat> film being a visual medium, I, I think it might have made his presence and his need stronger had we at least seen something of his fall from Greece, a scene or two showing it. Cause like I said, I, I just feel like we, we went from the bit in the woods and, and, and all the stuff that follows that and the church humiliation right into all of this without anything in between. And as long as, uh, you know, believe me, this is a long movie with a lot of detail, and a lot of quiet scenes. Um, so I don't want like the three hour, there will be blood extravaganza. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of his fall from grace. Um, <clears throat> you know, just it, it, the just, only it felt. That I can even, the only reason that I not Eli's fall from grace is that in that final scene, he is already such a sympathetic character because he is emotionally and physically dominated by Daniel Plainview. I don't. I don't know that you would want to run the risk of making him any more sympathetic and, and and confusing what he has been for the entire movie and turning him into a truly sympathetic character to which the the audience begins to feel genuine empathy for. Because up until that point, as sympathetic as it may be, seeing a, a young man just be physically dominated by someone who is completely out of their mind, Eli was not a good 
character. He was not someone that you pull for. He, he was not someone with a lot of redeeming qualities. And, and showing him slowly falling from grace and, and being in a relatable situation where so many people have been that they've had to scrape and scrap and have had things taken away from them in a way that they feel is unfair, I feel like you may shift the tone uh, of who and what the character of Eli is. Okay. Um, that's pretty much all I've got that I want to talk about. The second tier and third tier character in the, in this thing are fine. They're all there. Nobody gives a bad performance, but really it's the, this is a, there's a two man play between Dano and Daniel day Lewis. Everybody else is, is chorus girl. Um, and certainly that last scene, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I haven't seen more people just to, stage play of that one last scene and call it I Drink Your Milkshake, the musical. But um, here's what I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm sure you would. Here's what I'm going to turn over to you. Uh, and, I'm, and we'll start it this way. First, do you know of anyone that you've made watch this that was like, I didn't like this movie. Why did you do this to me? No. This, okay. this Every- is this is one of the most universally praised movies of the last 10 years. Um, okay. It came out in 2007. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson had a lot of buzz before this. Boogie Nights was obviously uh, a critical masterpiece. Uh, people raved on and on about it. It, it legitimized Mark Wahlberg's acting career. Um, there there were a lot of, of glowing reviews about Boogie Nights. And it's a movie that has endured and, and, and has done a, a lot of important things for cinema as far as reaffirming the fact that, you know, real movies like this can still be made and still be successful. Boogie Nights sort of restarted that trend on a large scale. Like you said, there were art house films. There were things that were being made independently. Boogie Nights sort of uh, reintroduced to people the idea that, hey, these movies can also have big name actors in them and still be very successful. Um there will be blood. I feel like elevated Paul Thomas Anderson onto another level uh, because he he had done Boogie Nights, he had done Magnolia, and, and I feel like there will be blood. Sort of pushed him from being a really good director that had done some really interesting projects to maybe not necessarily being on the level of someone like Kubrick. And maybe Jed will scream at me when he hears this and tell me that Paul Thomas Anderson is on the same level as Kubrick. But at the very least, he's in the discussion of guys like Kubrick, where when you talk about great directors that consistently turn out great content, his name gets mentioned. And I feel like There Will Be Blood turned him from being someone that you took notice of what he was doing to all of his projects become must-watch projects. And to that end, I think it speaks volumes about exactly how well-established he is in that because Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis are collaborating on another project, and it revolves around the fashion industry in the 1960s, and I can't wait to see it. And I'm not sure I've ever said anything more homosexual than that. (laughs) Um, So a little insight into how my mind works. I saw Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York, loved it, 
And I tend to like most you of them, of course. You ever hear any of the stories from, from the set on that no. movie? No. Well, he's, a, he's, a, he's a character actor, and he gets into his parts. He Once he starts preparing for a part, he's in that character for months on end. And apparently it became something of a problem on the set where he would walk around as Bill the Butcher challenging other cast and crew members to knife fights. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio would have been down for a knife fight. Probably not, no. So I had, you know, and I like most things Scorsese done. One of my favorite movies of all time is actually Casino. I saw it when it opened opening night and I have been in love with that movie ever since. It's one of those where I really, no matter how many times I've watched it and I've watched it a bunch, I don't have a lot of critically negative things to say about it. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, there are parts of it that are uncomfortable in the ways that you were talking about before, but unlike the master, which made me uncomfortable and not entertained, I was at least entertained by, Sharon Stone's uncomfortable behavior in that movie, you know, or some of the things she does. You, you weren't entertained by Joaquin Phoenix jerking off into the ocean. Nope, <laughs> that's just the tip Weird. of the iceberg. Yeah, I know, Weird. Weird guy that I am. But um, I had already seen Daniel Day Lewis and Gangs of New York, and I thought, and I think when There Will Be Blood was first out, I was like, well, I've already seen him do this. <laughs> I, that was my reaction to it too. And without knowing anything about else about this movie, I was like, I've already seen him do a movie like this. It was Gangs of New York, and it was great. I don't need to do this again. And so I never pursued it any further than that. So I will, uh, I'll, I'll take that one on me and say I'm a dummy, <laughs> and didn't, and and just didn't uh, give the movie a chance for a bit for a bad reason. So with that said, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you and say, is there anything left that you wanted to discuss or ask or you know just put out there to the world uh as we say in the as we say in the recovery rooms do you have any burning desires um my burning desires for a sequel there will be blood too even bloodier um i don't know that we'll ever get it doesn't really seem like the producer paul thomas anderson or daniel day lewis would revisit there will be blood too more milkshakes yeah more milkshakes something Mm-hmm. Uh, throwing explosions, some CGI, whatever. Uh, no, my my biggest desire for this movie is if you haven't if you have not seen this, watch it. Um, it it's not an easy watch. Uh, again, it, it's not something that you just turn on for the fun of it and think, okay, in an hour and a half, I'm going to go to the store, but I'm going to watch a movie first and kill some time. It, it, this is a movie that that demands attention. This is a movie that will affect you emotionally. Um, it, it's a little bit exhausting, um, but the performance again, you know, it, it, it's one of the four or five best that I've ever seen. And, uh, I, I can't imagine if you, if you truly enjoy movies, truly enjoy cinema without, uh, sounding too hoity toity. If you enjoy movies as film or as an art form, I can't imagine that you would watch this and come away disappointed. Um, there's so much to to enjoy from the cinematography to what you talked about with 
the the directorial style where the camera is very still and there's not quick cuts and jumping around to the performances that Paul Thomas Anderson gets out of Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano and the supporting cast, which is pretty consistent for for Paul Thomas Anderson. Even uh, I don't know if you've seen Magnolia or not, Mark, but the it, it gets a little weird at times, and by a little, I mean a lot. Um, Raining Frogs, that's what I know it, about that movie. Raining it, Frogs. Well, uh, I'll, I'll offer um, a, a six-word phrase by which you can gauge your interest on the movie. Respect the cock, tame the cunt. Um, <laughs> take that for what you will, and you know if you <laughs> if you want to explore the movie further, I encourage it. But uh, Paul That's Thomas good. Anderson gets the best. Hang on, that's going to be uh, the name of my new day, that's going to be the name of my new dating advice podcast. Respect the cock, tame the cunt. Brought to you by the Rattling and Broadcasting well, Network. There, there are plenty of sound clips from the movie that you can you can <clears throat> cut up and use for the. Um, <laughs> it's repeated. It's repeated several times. Um, but he gets the best out of his actors, and he obviously knows what he's doing behind the camera, uh, because as we all know, movies are are much more than the sum of the characters. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, and if you haven't seen this, then by all means, make it a priority. Find it, seek it out, watch it. I would recommend all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies aside from Punch Drunk Loves, um, but even try that out. It might be your cup of tea. If it is your cup of tea, don't ever speak to me. But um, <laughs> who knows? There are different strokes for different folks. Um, but no, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to offer you a, a change of pace from your typical movie viewing experience. You know, I'm depressed. I can't go see Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. I'm depressed that the movie exists. So, <laughs> And therein lies the difference between Gavin Napier and Mark Radledge. All right. I think then we have reached the natural conclusion to this discussion. And I, I thank you for having it with me. It's a, it was a pleasure being able to really uh, dig deep into a dense cinema project and pull out some real kernels uh, of discussion. Uh, I had fun. It's, it's rare that I get, you know, you know, Sean and I have our thing, Robert and I have our thing, but it's, it is a rare thing when I get to just pull a movie out of, you know, the, the history of cinema and, and, and just have a straight non gimmicked uh, deconstruction of the movie. So it's something I enjoyed doing uh, in my younger years and something I, I think I can still do pretty well. So this was, this was the perfect opportunity to, to be able to do that. You know, there was no, there's no money discussion in this. <laughs> we're not, we're not uh, treating it like a witness on a stand. We're not doing, you know, huge franchises here. This was just a straight up movie deconstruction. And we started with one that had a lot to work with. So uh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you uh, pushing it on me like a drug like like a drug dealer. So thank you, Gavin. Well, may may all of your future because whoever made me be so successful and enjoyable as as there will be blood. Um, I don't know that you'll ever see or discuss a better film, but may they all be as enjoyable. All right. Uh, well, I hope you had a good time tonight, sir, and uh, I hope we'll have we can have you back again now. 
you know, as much as the movie was giving me Ajita, I, I still feel like I need to do this. I need to do this for myself. Uh, I need to, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, pushing yourself to lift a higher weight or running that extra mile. I feel I have to test myself. I have to push myself. I always have to be climbing another hill, another mountain. And so uh, if you're available and you are interested, I would love to do another Because Gavin Made Me on February 2nd and do The Master. Uh, I don't think I have anything that would prevent me from doing that. Uh, I will check the schedule and confirm with you. But put me down as a tentative guest, um, and it's very likely that I will clear anything that is not emergent from the schedule to discuss the nuances of, again, uh, the master with, with two very strong performances from two very talented actors playing off of each other, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, God rest his soul. Um, Very different in tone from There Will Be Blood, but there are some similarities to discuss and a lot of awkward moments. So bad. (laughs) So I, uh, I, I, I have to give it another chance because I didn't know what I was getting myself into and it's really not my thing, but I, as I, as we say all the time on damn you Hollywood, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. So now that I've watched at least half of it and I'm going to go back and watch it again. And this time not with my kids around. <laughs> that's a, that's a terrible idea. Um, that's, that's a very bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they can be, even if they have no clue what's happening and aren't really paying attention, they can also be a smidge distracting. Um, a little. Yeah. So I'm going to block some time off when they're, you know, when I'm not watching Voltron legendary defender season two uh, to, to sit down and watch this thing and really give it a critical eye because I was very hard on it in our online discussion the first time. And then Jed yelled at me. And so I, I, now I am compelled. I am moved. I am encouraged to look at it critically and go, okay, is it just my taste or is this thing truly terrible? So We'll save that discussion will, for uh, two weeks from now. Well, I will, I will give you a brief preview of my thoughts on the movie. It is a fantastic movie. It is well shot, well acted, well performed. Um, it's not an enjoyable movie. <laughs> it, it, it is a great movie, but it is not enjoyable. You said a mouthful there, Buster. All right. Um, with that said, I think we, uh, we, we are ready to close up shop here. Uh, specifically, let's get into plugs. Now, I said before, formally, 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 you have this, you have that, you have the other thing. What is going on in, in your world? Is the Bunkhouse Stampede GED dead? Are, are the casual heroes retired? I know we're, we, well, not me anymore, because I'll be at SmackDown Live. But I know uh, I planned a reunion of sorts. For you folks, the Tuesday after WrestleMania. But outside of that, are are have you uh, like officially retired your own uh, directed podcast? And where in the world is Chris? What happened to Chris? Did he die? Did he did he go back to the planet that he came from? What's going on? The casual heroes are on an indefinite hiatus. Uh, but as with all indefinite hiatuses, it can end at any time. Uh, what essentially happened was life. Um, 
There were a lot of conflicting schedules. It, it became very difficult to get everybody together at the same time for the regular podcast. Um, little secret, Chris didn't really enjoy doing the wrestling podcast because Chris isn't really a wrestling fan. He steered the ship for us out of the goodness of his heart and because he was the one that was actually recording the audio. So since he had to be at the computer anyway, he decided to take part, but it wasn't something that he really enjoyed. Um, he had moments, but overall it got to be a bit of a chore, which led to some burnout. Um, then Chris also got engaged and got married and now has additional responsibilities. Um, I am engaged, and so that creates a little bit of a, a schedule quandary, but not not as much as one would think. Um, and I think, I don't know if he would admit it or not, but I think Jed got a little burned out as well. And it just sort of stopped being fun. Um, the stampede with Pat. Uh, it just got to a position where I, I wasn't really thrilled about paying for Blog Talk Radio to continue hosting it. Um, looked at some other options, which we may be able to roll out probably after the wedding in April once everything has settled into normalcy and I'm not packing up an apartment that I've lived in for almost eight years. Um, I think that there's a very realistic possibility that we see some form uh, of wrestling and sports and movie discussion return from at least some of the parties involved with casual heroes. Um, just not sure when it will be. Uh, part of me misses doing it on a regular basis. Part of me thinks, you know, this was fun for an hour and a half tonight. I don't know if I want to do this a couple of times a week or do it every week. Um, but it's nice to to get back into having some, some at-length discussions about things like this. So I'm sure at some point you will see a revival in some form or fashion of the casual heroes or some of its players. Are you involved in any projects now that uh, are non-podcast related? Are you doing any writing or at this point, are you, are, you're, you're creative uh, endeavors are at a standstill and you're, you're doing life stuff and uh, exclusively. I am going back to school. I am planning a wedding. I am working two jobs. I am volunteering at church. I am planning a week long trip to Baltimore for 45 college age young men and women, as well as fundraising for it. I have no time or energy or desire to do anything creatively at this point. <laughs> Good plug, sir. Excellent. <laughs> All right. I, I, and I understand that. I, I tend to forget that I am a settled married man with two kids who go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. So I have all this free time at night because my wife goes to bed early as well. And I just go and I look around and I go, well, why isn't everybody? What's going on? Why am I all alone? Um, but no, you're absolutely right. You, you have a lot of stuff going on and you, uh, you certainly need the time to dedicate to that. I, however... I'm running an empire here on the Rattledge Broadcasting Network, and we are all about content, content, content. Uh, this past week, we, uh, we had our TV party tonight. I had my coworker on. The audio was only somewhat shitty. <laughs> God damn you, Blog Talk Radio. I don't even know if it's Blog Talk Radio anymore. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if it's just my computer and the fact that uh, it, it's, it's running a little slower than it should. But... Um, in any case, on Monday, we had the uh, source material, the third part of our Flintstones discussion, which turned into a broad discussion or a discussion of broads about the polyamory society. 
because there was a Flintstone comic talked about the sex cave. So there's that. That was a fun discussion. Uh, again, we had Tea Party Tonight, in which we discussed Michael Pollan's Cooked on Netflix. Uh, I had Adrian Wagner on, who's a coworker of mine and a home cook of her own, in her own right, and she was lovely, lovely, lovely. And her audio only sucked a little bit. Um, yesterday, we had our uh, our first album review proper on the Metal Hammer of Doom, Sepultura, Machine Messiah, and what could one say is that our best shows are the ones when we hate the album because by the end of it, we were yelling out things like. You know, get your dollar bills ready, ladies and gentlemen, for Pandora's box and yelling, you know, and, 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 and a very brief discussion of how uh, pretty girls get arrested, but it turns out they all have chlamydia. And then Robert Cooper in his Admiral Ackbar voice yelled out, it's a clap. Um, so that was fun. We read quotes from Walden and we played songs from Primus and it all was relative uh, and related to Sepultura Machine Messiah. Um, next week, on ye old broadcast. Uh, we've got the first part of Jesse. So what's your reading special? I was on it. I talked about moon Knight. I talked about the uh, Batman mad love, uh, talked a little bit about, uh, this and that. And the other thing, Ronnie was on, he was talking about his comics and we had a gentleman on from the Kapow Pow cast. It was, uh, so you'll hear whatever Jesse cut up and put on for, for Monday, uh, TV party tonight. We'll be looking at, uh, Voltron Legendary Defender Season 2, and we'll be starting that at 10.30 because that's when Cooper is available from his, you know, day labor job or whatever it is that he does. Um, Metal Hammer of Doom is back on Wednesday with Firewind, the ba- the uh, album Immortals. And finally, we have our second episode of On Trial. Myself and Sean Comer will put the movie uh, Chris Nolan's Inception on trial. I will defend, he will prosecute, fun will be had, tears will be shed. So uh, with that said, I think we have reached the ultimate conclusion of our first Because So-and-So Made Me. I want to once again thank Gavin for being on the show. Hopefully things work out and we can do this again in two weeks and then I will feel that my debt has been has been paid. I feel like I will be out of debt to you and I can move forward into other uh, interesting and worthwhile projects. Can we do that? Can I, can I, can I, can we say that my debt is paid to you after the master? Uh, we can, but I'll bet once you watch Boogie Nights, you'll want to discuss it. Um, that's, uh, I, I will take up that, uh, that challenge and say probably. Um, I, it's, it's a movie I do want to watch. I just got to have time to watch it. So I, I'll know that when I get to it and when I want to do it, you'll be available to talk about it. You seem pretty eager to do that. So, but I don't want to make you do have to two, three shows in a row. So I will give, I will give you a break, my friend. I will give you a break. All right. Uh, so that's it. That's our show. Uh, we'll be back next week. Be well, be safe, and where's my music? Behave. I'm sick. <laughs>